sister and her family were up visiting uh, all the way from Mexico. They made a road trip uh, and they have three girls and they had never been to BC before except for my brother-in-law, but I wanted to do something special with them. I wanted to do something with them that was truly Kootenai. Don't worry, we didn't go to Shambhala or any of that, but uh, I decided to book a, uh, a zipline tour and it was a ton of fun. And the girls loved it. And I don't know if that's your cup of tea, but for me, getting a bird's eye view of some of God's amazing creation and getting an adrenaline rush while you're at it, it is definitely something that makes me feel truly alive. Um, my wife sent me with blessings. She's like, you go have fun. I will not do that. But in, in order to experience... Uh, this ziplining experience that I was so looking forward to, this life-giving experience for me, I actually had to reverse the way that I normally think because while we're taught growing up to not jump off of high places or walk off of tall buildings or things like that because, well, gravity hurts, right? But in order to get this exhilarating experience that I was looking forward to, I had to make a mental shift. I had to actually place my trust in this tiny little cable running across a canyon and this harness to hold me. And then I had to actually physically step off of that platform if I wanted to enjoy this experience. Had I not done that, had I not placed my trust in the harness or the cable or physically stepped off, I would have walked away disappointed. Maybe safe, but disappointed. And in our scripture passage for today, we have a similar uh, story, only in this story there is something far greater at stake than just a ziplining experience. But before we read this passage, uh, I would invite you to pray with me. God, you are the author of life, and you know our deepest desires and our deepest longings because... You are the one who designed us with them. You gave us them. And Lord, you are the good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. You demonstrated your love by giving your only son to die on a cross so that we may have life. Lord, remind us of this truth and your love today as we hear your word. Give us ears to hear what you may have for us today and receptive minds and hearts so that your word can transform us this morning. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to John, sorry, not John, Mark chapter 10. And we'll be starting in verse 17. And you may know this story as the story of the rich young ruler, but the Gospel of Mark actually only tells us that he was rich and Matthew adds that he was young, and Luke adds that he was a ruler, so that's why we get the rich young ruler. But in any case, this story is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, which should perk our ears up and tell us that this is an important story because all three synoptic writers included it and found it important to include in their gospel. But I, my favorite account is in the Gospel of Mark because it adds a detail that the other two do not have. And it's very important. The Gospel of Mark, just to give you a bit of a background, is divided into three main sections. The first section 
uh, is the ministry of Jesus. And this is where we see a lot of his miracles and healings and casting out of demons. And everyone is left wondering, who is this Jesus? And in the second part, the disciples finally start to catch the drift a little bit. They, they acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. But they learn very quickly that Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that they were expecting, and God's kingdom is a very different kind of kingdom from what they were expecting. And in this section, we learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow him. And then the last part of Mark focuses on Jesus' journey to the cross and his death and resurrection. Our story today is in that second section of Mark, in the section about discipleship, about trying to figure out what kind of Messiah is Jesus, what does following him actually look like. And Jesus spends a lot of time giving us examples of what it means to be his disciple um, in our marriage with children. And in today's story, he talks about what does it mean to be his disciple in the context of our possessions, of our wealth, of our money, our riches. So let's read Mark 10:17 through 31. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Let's unpack this text together. Starting back in verse 17, the man that we have in this story, he doesn't just happen to be casually walking by and running into Jesus. I want us to imagine this. Here's this man who has a sense of urgency to his quest. Imagine the scene, this wealthy young man, probably well-dressed, well-put-together, respected by the people around him, runs up to Jesus, throws himself on his knees, 
and says, Good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now we read this in our Western context and we think, oh, maybe he's asking, when I die, Jesus, what do I have to do so that I drift away some far place to heaven? But that's not quite the way a first century Jew would have been thinking about this. And I don't think it's quite the biblical way to think about eternal life. This man is referring to the age to come, the arrival of the kingdom of God, when heaven and earth come together and when God will finally reign as king forever over all the nations and bring justice and peace and blessing to all, where pain and strife and death will cease and everything will be made new. This is the image he has in his mind. It's the vision we get in Revelation chapter 21. And I think that's the biblical view of the good life. The terms eternal life and salvation and kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, the age to come, they're all referring to the same thing. This is the real good life that this rich man is after. This is what he's asking about, what he wants. The man calls Jesus good teacher. And in doing so, he was trying to initiate a very common social interaction between two people of honored positions. In his address of Jesus, he would have expected Jesus to actually respond in a very similar way. Good sir, estimated or esteemed ruler, or most honorable guest. The man is likely thinking that the conversation would go something along the lines of this. From one good man to another, can you give me any advice or tell me of any additional good deeds I ought to do so that it will pay off in the age to come? In other words, I know I'm pretty good, but I'm not perfect. I don't have it all. Is there anything in the fine print I may have missed? But Jesus does not play along with the social flattery and wordplay that was expected. The man is assuming that he himself is good and that there must be something good he can do to earn a respectable place in God's kingdom. But Jesus actually brings him face to face with his self-centered false assumptions. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Jesus' response here is actually a strong reproof. Goodness and salvation do not come from our own efforts. And so this becomes our first point today. And that is, we can't get the good life through our own efforts. If we could, if we could be in right relationship with God on our own efforts and enter into his kingdom then it would presume that we, like God, are also good. But if we truly are good, then we would wholeheartedly obey his commandments and live according to his law. But Jesus humors the man. He says, okay, if you insist that there is something you want to do so that you can inherit eternal life, let's see how you're doing with the basics. Let's see how you're doing in obeying God's commandments. In the book of Exodus, God issues ten commandments. He, he issues a lot more, but he starts with these ten basic commandments that, if obeyed, ensure that the people of God would be living in right relationship with God and with each other. 
And the first of these commandments, they deal with our vertical relationship with God. Don't worship any other gods. I am your, the Lord your God. And the second half of these commandments, they deal with our horizontal relationships with our fellow humans, our duty to love our neighbor. And I want to pause and give you an, an illustration to help us understand what Jesus is actually doing here. Because we know, okay, if we can't earn eternal life through our own efforts, then why is Jesus pointing the man to the commandments? Why is he pointing him to things to do? But Jesus is actually accomplishing something very important here. He points the man to the commandments. And to better understand this, I think, I think of the illustration of a gym. How many of you have ever walked into a gym, especially a weight room, and the walls are covered in mirrors? Yeah? Any of you? A lot of gyms have this. A lot of gyms, and believe it or not, they're not... I used to think that these mirrors were there just to feed my own ego and watch myself flex or check myself out or take an Instagram picture. But I learned through fitness trainers, they said, these aren't there just to feed your ego. They actually have a purpose. The mirrors in a gym are there to show the weightlifter when they're not using proper form and how to do an exercise properly. If you're not aware of where you're messing up your form, you can continue in ignorance, but you're not going to get the results you want, and eventually you're just going to end up injured. So just like a mirror exposes bad form to the athlete, the Ten Commandments expose our sin. They make us aware of where we are falling short of God's standard. Without them, we also live in ignorance, especially in our pursuit of this good life. Paul actually points to this in Romans 7.7. 7. He says, It was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known what coveting was, or that coveting is wrong, if the law had not said, you must not covet. And so Jesus invites this rich man to take a look at the gym mirror, the spiritual gym mirror. Alright, let's look at the basics. How are you doing in your duty to your neighbor? You know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely or cheat anyone, and honor your father and mother. Now, notice that Jesus skips the tenth commandment, do not covet. And he reorders them a little bit. He actually adds one, do not cheat. Maybe your version says, do not defraud. See, rich people back then, much like today, sometimes not all of the time, but sometimes gain their riches at the expense of other people, right? Through oppressive working conditions or unfair labor, unfair pay. And Deuteronomy 24 and Malachi 3, they warn us against this sin. Do not cheat any laborer of fair wage. Do not take advantage of the weak, the needy, or poor. And so this rich man is being confronted by Jesus and Jesus asks him, have you gotten your wealth with integrity? Or have you cheated someone? And the man replies earnestly, all these commands I have kept since my youth. Now I know that this man is earnest in his response because of how Jesus responds after that. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for the man. 
And this is the detail that only the Gospel of Mark has. Matthew and Luke do not include this detail. But I think this is a crucial detail to understanding this story. Because it tells us that this man is not a pompous, arrogant, hardened man. Yes, he, it's been a while since he took a look at the gym mirror. Yes, he thinks himself to be good. And he's misguided in his understanding because he believes he can do something to earn eternal life. But the man is sincere when he says, Jesus, all these commands I have kept since my youth. And Jesus sees this sincerity. He looks at the man, which actually means he knows the man better than the man knows himself. And he felt genuine love for him. Don't miss that. If we miss it, we can have the tendency to think Jesus is just heaping extra burdens and unreasonable expectations on the rich. But that is actually not what's happening here. Jesus knows him. He loves him. He wants to give him the life that he's looking for. It's precisely because Jesus knows the man's heart and precisely because he loves him that Jesus wants to expose the man's sin, the bad form he has, so that he can become aware of it, repent, and then be made whole. And so in a roundabout way, Jesus comes full circle on the Ten Commandments. See, the man is pretty good at following rules. On the outside, he's good at everything that's visible. The commands that are visible, exterior, and all about doing, he's pretty good at keeping. But now Jesus holds up the other gym mirror, the one that exposes the man's heart, the vertical relationship with God. And here is where the man's sin lives. Jesus exposes the man's covetousness, commandment 10, and his idolatry, commandments 1 through 3. And all of those commandments are wrapped up in Jesus' challenge to go sell everything and give to the poor and then come follow him. See, Jesus is not heaping on more rules. He's, he's showing him where the real problem lies. And the man needs a complete redo of his heart. Because although on the outside he's good at following rules, on the inside his heart is covetous and idolatrous. And this brings us to our second point, and that is that we cannot see Christianity or Jesus as an add-on. We can't sprinkle Jesus on, onto our lives. This man has everything going for him. He's rich, he's young, he's got his whole career life in front of him, and he already has a position of prominence in society. He's respected. Anything he wants, he could buy. He's well-liked and he's respected. And by the world standard, this guy's got it made. And by the world standard, he is a good guy, right? We would look at this man, I think, the same way the disciples saw him. If anyone is fit for the kingdom of God, it's this guy. He hasn't cheated anyone. He's good at following all the commandments. He's humble enough to even recognize, I don't have it all. But the man thinks that maybe Jesus has something to add to his already pretty good life. What is that 
one more habit to adopt or that one more principle I can learn and apply to my life? What is that missing cherry on top of an ice cream sundae that he can add to ensure that in the next life he will be as blessed as he is in this life? But Jesus makes it very clear that inheriting eternal life, participating in and living into God's kingdom, is not about sprinkling Jesus into your life. It's not about just adding him on. It's a complete redo of your heart. In the Gospel of John, we actually have another story that's very similar, where a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus in private at nighttime, and he also recognizes that Jesus is a good teacher. Nicodemus also wants to know what Jesus can offer him and how he can teach him in the way of righteousness. But Jesus won't have it. He tells him straight up, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And he goes on to expand. He says, unless you are born of the Spirit, receiving a new heart, you can't get there. And Nicodemus and the rich man can't just sprinkle a little Jesus into their religiosity. They can't just add another good deed or learn a new principle to earn eternal life. They need a new heart, a complete new vantage point from which to approach life with. They need a heart that is devoted to God first and foremost, not a heart that is devoted to the idolatry of money or self-righteous works or religious acts or maybe in our context, chasing the American dream. So what is the condition of the man's heart? Is it a heart that is repentant and open to complete transformation? Or is it ignorant of the sin in his own life and set on self-centered gain? Jesus finds out by confronting the man with the other commandments. You shall not have other gods before me. You shall not worship other idols. And the word worship in Hebrew is translated as serve. You shall not serve other gods. You shall not covet. All of these commandments are wrapped up in Jesus' challenge to the man to go sell what he has, give it to the poor, and then come follow him. And at these words, the man went away grieving. The word sad doesn't quite cut it. He, was, he went away grieving because he had great wealth. Now notice that this is the only time in the gospel stories where someone has an encounter with the real Jesus and they walk away grieving. Every other example we get, we have people encountering the real Jesus and they drop what they have, they drop what's, what's keeping them behind and they jump up with joy and they follow Jesus. This is the only example where we have someone walking away grieving. <coughs> Excuse me. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't chase after him. He lets the man walk. Here's a good man, quote unquote. Jesus tells him what the problem is, invites him to follow, but he respects the man enough to let him walk. Timothy Keller, he says this about Jesus. He says, when you encounter the real Jesus, <clears throat> you're always shocked. 
you're always disturbed. And when you encounter the real Jesus, you realize that he demands much more than you thought, but he also offers far more than you can ever imagine. But one thing is certain. When you encounter Jesus, you cannot be indifferent. You either bow down and you follow him, or you will walk away offended. But the real Jesus will never leave you indifferent. Which brings us to our third point. We can't get the good life when there's a barrier in the way, especially when it's a barrier that we're holding on to, a barrier that we want to drag with us. The man's barrier to getting the good life was his wealth. And I don't know if you're squirming a little bit, but this passage always makes me uncomfortable. I was taking a course in Mark recently. We're studying the whole gospel, and I kept getting stuck on the story because I don't like it. (laughs) It makes me uncomfortable. And so I decided, okay, maybe God is trying to teach me something. And so I wanted to dig into it, and that's why I'm sharing it this morning, because it came first and foremost as a conviction in my own life. But this passage has often gotten misinterpreted. Some have said that money and wealth are inherently evil and that all Christians should live a life of poverty. And you're probably all hoping I didn't reach that conclusion. But on the other hand, it's also been misinterpreted as a prosperity gospel message that says, the more you give, the more God will put back into your bank account. See, Jesus does say at the end that the reward will be hundredfold. But I don't think that either of those interpretations are a faithful reading of the text. First, this is the only man in the Bible of which Jesus asked him to give away all his possessions. It's not a universal command. Second, there are faithful followers of God who are incredibly rich, and flipping through the Bible, you'll find some of these faithful servants. Abraham, Job, David, Solomon, just to name a few. And it's also clear that some of the disciples were actually quite wealthy. Peter, for example, had a home big enough to host others. He owned a boat. John and James were part of a fishing enterprise with their dad. You can just see the marketing tag, Zebedee Fishing Enterprise. And they had hired hands under them. Yes, they left these possessions to physically follow and journey with Jesus, But if you keep reading the Gospels to the end, you'll notice that they actually return back to their fishing boats. They return back to their businesses. And they're flourishing. They're doing well. And so, I believe that it's not a universal call. I believe that money in and of itself is not inherently evil. But the Bible also doesn't let us off the hook so quickly. It doesn't let us off the hook believing that money and wealth is completely neutral. It is powerful, and it has the potential for many dangers. I find it helpful to think of money the same way I think about fire. Fire is useful and can bring about a lot of good, right? It provides light, heat, and a means by which we can cook food. But fire is powerful and can be very dangerous if it's not attended to, right? BCers and Albertans know this all too well. What happens when a fire in the forest is left unattended. It can wipe out communities. It can wipe out entire forests. 
And in the same way, money can serve God's kingdom purposes and do a lot of good, but the Bible warns us of the many, many dangers that money has. Here's just a list of them that we find throughout Scripture. Pride, reliance upon riches, overattachment to riches, greed for more riches, temptations, cares and anxieties, spiritual complacency, contempt for God, contempt for the poor, being ruled by money, loving money, trusting in money, boasting in money. I think it's a problem not only for people who have money, but also for people who don't have money. Because it creates envy, it creates greed, it creates a dependency on money. All of these dangers are mentioned throughout Scripture. And in the following verses, Jesus speaks to the disciples and he says, it's incredibly rich for the it's incredibly hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to enter heaven. Now, maybe you're like me and you grew up hearing this story that there was a gate in Israel that a camel could fit through if it just threw off its cargo and got on its, on its knees. Blah, blah, blah. Don't believe that. I looked at, I think, over ten commentaries, and all of them said that is a bogus, made-up story that completely distracts us from what Jesus is actually trying to say. Jesus is making a ridiculous hyperbole to show that it's impossible for the biggest animal in Palestine to fit through one of the smallest holes that we, ha that we observably have. But it's important for us to understand that it's not harder for a rich person to enter heaven simply because they're rich. And therefore Jesus has some kind of a higher call on their life. It's not easier for a, per, for a poor person to enter the kingdom of God simply because they are poor, because they are more virtuous. That's not what Jesus is getting at. It is hard for the rich to enter God's kingdom because riches can so easily sway a person into the dangers mentioned throughout the Bible. Riches can so easily blind a person from seeing their own true brokenness, right? From looking at that gym mirror. Case in point, it's pretty easy for a drug addict who is broke, living on the street, to realize that they need help. To realize that they need saving, right? But it's so much harder for someone whose life is completely put together, for someone who's got everything going for them, to realize they need a Savior, to realize that they also fall short of God's standards. That is why it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because they're so confident in their riches. I love that image of the money between your glasses. They're blinded in a false sense of security. They don't think they need that gym mirror to help them see where they fall short. And although I do want to stress this passage specifically is about possessions and riches, I don't think that that is where our application stops. I don't think this applies only to people who have a thick wallet. We are all rich in many different ways. Rich in opportunities, in our freedoms here in this country, 
in our time, in our energy, in our education and knowledge, in our gifts and our talents that we have. You may not feel rich, but in different ways we are all incredibly rich. And it's easy to place one's trust and loyalty in these riches, right, of our lives, whether it's financial riches or other ones. It's easy to depend on them. It's easy to be lured by the self-centered desires we're all prone to. And it's easy to rely and depend on our savings account, our TFSAs, our ERSPs, our efforts, our hard work. It's easy to think we're in charge of our destiny, right? The lure of money can lead us to believing a false version of what it means to have the good life. And all these riches mentioned, both financial and not financial, are not evil in and of themselves as long as they are placed in their proper place and that's under the Lordship of Christ. Not on par, not above, not apart. And Jesus makes sure that he doesn't just leave the application or the warning to the rich. He says in verse 24, Children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of heaven, period. Everyone, not just the rich. At this point, the disciples are all amazed. They're shocked. If this moral man, who is blessed by God with many possessions, who lives a moral life, who's respectable, if he's not fit for God's kingdom, then who in the world is? And I love this. This is where we get the good news of the gospel. Jesus says, With man this is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. The rich man could not do something to inherit eternal life. He could not add on some extra TED Talk advice of a rule to apply. He needed a change of heart. He needed the good doctor to perform a surgery that only Jesus could perform. The question is, was he willing to place all his trust in Jesus and embrace the freedom and life that Jesus wanted to give him? Was he willing to start a life of discipleship? This brings us to our last point, and that is that the good life has to be received. You cannot receive something if your fists are clenched. You cannot experience freedom if you're willing, if you're not willing to let go of the things that are holding you down. The man wanted real life, eternal life, a life that was satisfying and purposeful. He longed for the good life, the God life, but he wanted it by his own means. And Jesus said, you can't get it by your own means. Only Jesus can give the true good life. And his invitation to the man was, let go of the things that are misguiding you, the things that are blinding you. You're trusting in your riches. You're attached to that. It's not going to work if you want to live in the reversed kingdom of God. But I love how Jesus doesn't just leave the man with a hard command, but an invitation to come follow him. In John 14:6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Elsewhere in John, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
the reality is that any and all pursuits for joy and fulfillment apart from Jesus will leave us unsatisfied. They're going to leave us restless. Because all pursuits apart from Jesus come from a place of self-centeredness and misplaced trust. And the reason we're restless is because we're not created that way. We're not created to be self-centered. Since the beginning, God created us in His image, in His likeness, for His purpose. We are created to be Christ-centered beings. And it is only when we place all of our trust in Christ that we will be satisfied. So to close us off this morning, the question is, how do we posture ourselves in such a way that we can receive the good life? If you're familiar with Mark, he, the writer of Mark has a little technique called the Markin sandwich. It makes me hungry every time I think about it. But what he does is he sandwiches a lesson in between two other ones. There will, there will be a story with a lesson, and he'll sandwich them together with two other contrasting stories. So how do we posture our lives in a way that we can receive the good life? Your homework is to go look at the story just before this passage and just after. Jesus says in the verses just prior to this story that we must become like children. He contrasts the rich man with the little children. The rich man could not enter eternal life because he could not let go of his trust in his wealth. And Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to the little children. So what is it about kids that Jesus said we must become like? He's not saying you have to become childish. That's not what he's saying. He says become like children. What, it is, what is it about kids that Jesus wants us to become like? I'm, I'm a recent newer dad. I have a little two-year-old. And I'm learning this, that kids trust very easily. My daughter... She doesn't worry about where her lunch or supper is going to come from. She just knows mom and dad's going to provide it. She doesn't worry or question where she's going to sleep or if the house is going to shelter her from the rain. She just knows that mom and dad are going to take care of that. Little kids fully depend on their parents without worry and they trust so easily. So back to the zipline story. I don't think this is coincidence, but my sister and I, we were somewhat hesitant to jump on that harness. I was looking at the bolts through the tree and analyzing, is this thing going to hold me? I know I've gained a few pounds in the last few weeks. I don't, I don't know. And my sister kind of shrinks to the back of the crowd. She's like, yeah, my kids are going to go first. And when the tour guide asked us, all right, who wants to go first? It was without hesitation. There wasn't even a second delay that my youngest niece, age 10, jumped at the opportunity and she said, I'll go first. Would we become like children, recognizing that the good life is only found in Jesus? Trusting that He is good. Would we learn to not place our trust in anything else but Him? And so as the worship team comes forward, I want to close with this short prayer from St. Augustine, an early 3rd or 4th century Christian theologian. And he prayed this. He said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, 
and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Amen.